welcome everyone to this online conversation hosted by the European Centre for International Political Economy on the economic and broader societal value of intellectual property, or IP, for the EU and its member states. My name is Jackie Davis, and today I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Kuhn Bairden to this conversation. Kuhn is Executive Director for International Affairs at FPIA, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, focusing, among other things, on the EU's trade strategy. As such, he's in a very good position to comment on the recent ESIP study entitled The Benefits of Intellectual Property Rights in EU Free Trade Agreements. Kuhn, I want to talk to you today about global competitiveness, about strategic resilience, and the central issue addressed by this study, the importance of stronger IP provisions in trade agreements. But first, I'd like to go straight to the heart of the matter. And a criticism that you often hear in any discussion about IP rights, namely the concern that stronger IP provisions in trade agreements, but also elsewhere, would lead to higher costs and more expensive innovative medicines, and thus to less access to treatments. How do you respond to such criticisms? Thank you, Jackie, and great to, to be with you here uh, today. Uh, today. The, the, it's an interesting question. I think the, the standard thinking is based on economics, where when you create economic power, that leads to uh, uh, higher prices. And since IP does that, some consider that a logical consequence. But what is interesting, if you look at that for the pharmaceutical industry, as the ESIP study has shown, and as an independent IQVIA report of November last year has also shown, pharmaceutical expenditures uh, have actually dropped by 3.8% on average, after concluding an FTA with strong IP provisions. So it means that while you include strong IP provisions in EFTAs, that does not necessarily lead to pharmaceutical expenditure share increases. In fact, they go down. The other point is that we also see in these studies that access is faster for countries with stronger IP systems and via FTAs with stronger IP provisions than in those countries or uh, FTAs without these strong IP provisions. And that is really important also, I think, in light of the EU's pharmaceutical strategy, where there is a lot of focus on access. That will surprise a lot of people to hear what you're saying there. Um, so you're saying that not only is there no increase in the share of health spending that goes on pharmaceuticals, but that they actually support this faster access to new medicines, which is at the heart uh, of the current review of pharmaceutical legislation by the European Commission. Can you explain in a little more detail why that is? I think there are two elements, right? So one is the, the pharmaceutical expenditures part and, and also the, the micro prices for, for individual products. The reason we see that they do not go up despite uh, stronger IP provisions is because if you look at the life cycle of a medicine, a medicine is initially innovative, new and patented, but after the patent expires, it becomes generic. So each year, new innovative treatments get regulatory approvals and patented in, in the patent period, but also each year patents expire and products become generic. So generically produced. This cycle, where a generic is actually a previously innovative patented product, is not impacted by stronger IP because the 20-year patent term remains the same and products go 
in, uh, have patents and have innovative status mm -hmm. and become generic after a while. So every time a large medicine goes off patent, there is a significant reduction in pharmaceutical expenditures. That's the, that's the first point. The second one is we see that IP is not the driver for costs and pricing in many countries. There are domestic policies in place where countries use tools to control prices and expenses uh, for, med for innovative medicines. That's not related to IP. Your second question is on faster access. What is interesting there is that the, the studies find that because pharmaceutical research and development is among the riskiest and most long-term in any industry, a strong IP framework, um, including stronger IP provisions in EU trade agreements, provides more legal certainty for these long-term investments that stimulates research and that stimulates the introduction of new medicines in countries where that legal protection uh, for innovation is strong. And for example, the risk for infringements is low. And the evidence also in terms of investments that, that you can see in these uh, studies, also the ESIP study, is that standard TRIPS provisions do not have an impact on research and development because they're available everywhere. It is the novel IP provisions included by various countries like the EU to over 10% more of pharmaceutical investments. I want to come back on, on the question of TRIPS uh, in a little while, but before we do that and focusing for a moment on that cycle of innovation that you were talking about, from innovation and patents to generics and so on, as FBS Executive Director for International Affairs, you also cover China and other countries around the world. How are we doing uh, in terms of pharmaceutical innovation globally and how important do you think IP is for our global competitiveness in the pharmaceutical sector? Yeah, that's, that's one of the core questions I, I indeed look at almost on a daily basis. I think the EU has a very strong export position for medicines at this point. Almost 64% of all medicines exports in the world come from the EU and that share is even higher for, for vaccines. And the EU is a strong global competitor. But it's also important, I think, to look at the, the trends that we see. Whereas Europe was the leading destination for R&D and investments in the 1990s, the US has overtaken the EU, and at this moment, China is catching up very rapidly. So the global landscape is shifting. And US, China are really looking at how to strengthen and improve the environment for the innovative pharmaceutical industry. And for that, IP is absolutely vital because it is the, not only the lifeblood of the industry, but it's also the long-term driver for competitiveness. If you have, and, and this is uh, some, some interesting point I read in the ESIP study, that trade is becoming more IP intensive over time, that the knowledge economy is going to gain more and more ground as we go forward. And that means that intellectual property is vital especially also for the innovative pharmaceutical industry. I think mm. for Europe, there is a very clear choice to make. Do we want to go and take policies and ambitions that China has put in place and is putting in place? Or do we look at wanting to be Japan in 10, 20 years time? China has a very clear long-term vision. They want to become the number one country in life sciences by the 2030s. Okay. The country is taking clear measures, promoting R&D and protecting IP more and more, creating stronger measures 
than it has in previous years. You see China's IP index rise very rapidly. And if we become a Japan? Uh, Japan has rather underappreciated the value of innovation for the sake of cost cutting. And now Japan is very upset that in Japan, no COVID-19 vaccines or treatments have been developed. But that is in part the consequence of a long-term underappreciation for innovation. Another great debate, Kuhn, in the moment, at the moment in the European Union is about what it calls open strategic autonomy amid calls for the Union to become much more strategically independent in key sectors. COVID-19 and the dramatic rupture in relations uh, with Ukraine, with Russia over uh, the situation in Ukraine have shown that these dependencies really can be dangerous. How do you briefly, if you would, how do you see the role of IP in addressing this issue? Jackie, thanks for that question. I would say, first of all, I mean, you raise several elements in, in one question. The first thing is, it, it's, I think, important to note that also during the COVID pandemic, global supply chains behaved very agile and very resilient. That's really important. Uh, um, and it, it shows, and also OECD work has shown that global supply chains are the best way economies can insulate themselves against negative shocks. But they did also come under huge strain in some areas. That is correct. They do. But uh, we also see that because you have a global supply chain, if one region is hit, there is possibility to, uh, to diversify risk to, to other regions, even in a pandemic, because the, the peaks in different waves have not occurred in different regions at the same times. Right. So, so that's, that's one thing. I would say from, from a global perspective, it's important also for the EU to realize that uh, the word open in strategic autonomy is really important. If the EU, EU were to go for autonomy, yeah, strategic autonomy in the sense that it wants to close, and the U.S. would take the America first approach and China would take the manufacturing 2025 approach. All these efforts would be negative for global supply chains, would mm. lead to a collapse of trade, a collapse of specialization. And then, for example, the strong EU export position could be could be challenged. Now, and just ask, linking this to our discussion on IP, how does that fit in? Yeah. So you asked about IP and I think. IP is, is key for open strategic autonomy because what the EU means with open strategic autonomy is it wants to be able to chart its own course. What a strong IP framework does, it, it ensures investments and R&D and innovation in Europe. And that means when a pandemic is there or in the future a pandemic comes or when the EU wants to embark on, on other things, even outside the pharmaceutical industry, the Green Deal or digital transformation, those technologies are either there or in development in Europe. And you are not dependent on other regions to look at that, uh, where they may take industrial policy from a national, national interest. So that is a key way to chart and control the EU's own course. Maybe as a last point on this thing, that is especially the case for the pharmaceutical industry because competition for uh, resources and location are increasing in a post-COVID world. We see other countries step up their innovation-driven policies to attract innovation in health and in, in, in medicines. And I think also because the, the investments needed for new treatments and new medicines become deeper every year. So the, the sort of the long-term perspective of a stable intellectual property climate is really important for investment decisions. I wanted to come back on this point you were making about trade. You said 
trade is becoming more IP intensive over time. And you touched on the issue of the impact of TRIPS provisions. The ESIPE study does show, contrary to what some people uh, might believe, it suggests that stronger IP provisions also benefit EU partner countries. Is this an important argument in the discussions that we've been seeing at the World Trade Organization about a possible TRIPS waiver, including for COVID vaccines? I think, Jackie, there are there are two elements to this this question. Uh, one is yes, it is an important argument, but it goes beyond the trips waiver. I think what is interesting that comes out of the ESIP study is that stronger IP and EFTAs benefit the partner countries with GDP exports investments, and that means that whereas often the ask in negotiations on IP is seen as where one trading partner wants stronger IP and the other one tries to not have it, it seems to be a win-win. And that's really important for a potential dynamic in trade negotiations. Mm. Now, linked to that, but a bit separate from the bilateral trade agreements, is indeed the importance uh, that you highlight reg regarding the TRIPS waiver discussion and the importance of IP to beat the current pandemic and, of course, be as much prepared as possible for future ones. So I think, contrary to what some believe, the, the evidence is pretty clear now that, that IP has not been a barrier to vaccine equity in, in the pandemic. Okay. In fact, what intellectual property has done is it has, of course, allowed the immediate uh, research and development into vaccines and treatments, but it also has allowed 357 voluntary licensing agreements to have allowed for technology transfers and the incredible ramp up of production. Okay, let's come uh, finally back to the central issue uh, at the core of the ESIPE study and its conclusions both on the need for and the impact of stronger IP provisions in EU trade negotiations. Do you think uh, that those conclusions apply equally to the pharmaceutical industry? It looks at a number of different sectors uh, in the studies. How do they apply to you? And concretely, what do you believe needs to be done to address this? Yeah, thanks. So what is, what is indeed interesting is that the ESIP study looks at a, a lot of sectors. Huh? It looks at those 11 IP intensive uh, industries and indeed the pharmaceutical industry is one. But I would say that the, the topic of intellectual property and the importance of it is even more important for our industry than to some other even IP intensive industries. Because our industry is the most IP intensive industry, there is because of the long term investment, because of the riskiness and because of the uh, intellectual uh, uh, property that, that goes into R&D. So what is absolutely key, I think, is that not only do FTAs contain strong IP provisions and with IP provisions in the pharmaceutical context, I think what is important to stress is especially regarding regulatory data protection and supplementary protection certificates to actually have the equivalent of EU law in these free trade agreements. That's a very that's very concrete. The EU is very clear on the eight plus two plus one years of protection for regulatory data protection, the five years of supplementary protection certificates to compensate for long R&D and regulatory approval times. And those are also the key elements that uh, uh, matter for, for the pharmaceutical industry. I think the other element, and we are very happy to see that also in uh, DG Trade's trade policy at the Commission, is detailing provisions in a clear and effective way and focusing on FTA implementation and enforcement. 
they have created a chief trade enforcement officer in order to also implement commitments that are being made and to, to enforce them. I think those would be the key uh, elements. And if they are included in, in EU trade negotiations, those would be positive for, uh, uh, for the industry, but also for regulators. And ultimately, and that's what, uh, what is the goal here, is, is to get innovative medicines to, to patients that need them. Thank you very much, Kuhn, for charting the way forward as you see it uh, so clearly. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Over the next few months, we'll be unpacking the findings of this eSight study through a series of activities that include events, podcasts and blogs that will allow a range of experts to share their views. We'll be focusing on several exciting topics, including, among others, the European Green Deal, counterfeit products, the importance of IP for the EU's small and medium-sized enterprises, how IP can combat biodiversity loss, and why it is so vital also for the EU's services sectors. We invite you to join the discussion on social media using the hashtag IP in EU FTAs and to follow our trade and IP webpage at eSIPE.org for all future updates. Goodbye.